You're now listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Today, we're gonna discuss some of the tax proposals that came out via the Ways and Means Committee last month and what that might mean for real estate investors. Yep, and I think it's important to note that we're still in proposal mode. We we don't have any clarity, any, any finality to this yet. The new expectation is that we'll have a clarity, potentially even a vote by the end of October, October 31st. And the reason for that is a lot of infrastructure programs are expiring and the infrastructure bill is going to extend some of those programs, but that that expiration is on October 31st. So if the infrastructure bill doesn't pass by October 31st, it's gonna be a lot of infrastructure programs that all of a sudden don't have budget, don't have any money to continue. Now that that October 31st date is important because like I just said, the infrastructure bill has to be passed by then. But that also means that the budget reconciliation bill has to be passed by then. And the reason for that is the Democrats are suffering infighting. So there are some Democrats that will only vote for the infrastructure bill if the budget reconciliation bill passes. There are other Democrats that will only vote for the budget reconciliation bill if the infrastructure bill passes. So that means that you have to pass both bills on the same day or at the same time, which is going to be challenging. And in that October 31st date is the new date. And the reason that this is such a big deal and the reason that we're not talking about Republicans is because Democrats have a majority in both the House and the Senate. Uh, In the Senate, they're split evenly, but the vice president gets to cast that tie-breaking vote. So they have a majority in the Senate as well. Uh, And they have to use the budget reconciliation process in the Senate because you you can pass bills with just a simple majority with the budget reconciliation process, which is why they're doing this and which is why we're referring to it as a budget reconciliation bill. But the interesting thing about this slim majority that, that the Democrats hold in both the House and the Senate is that literally every single Democrat has veto power. If one Democrat decides, I don't like this, then they can blow the entire thing up, even though the rest of the party wants it. If one says no, they blow the entire thing up. That's why this has been such an interesting thing, I should say, to watch over the past few weeks. And it's going to be really interesting as we get to October 31st and we flesh out the holdout Democrats, what they want. And we're going to see what changes in these proposals as a result. So everything that we're going to talk about in this podcast is a proposal. It's not actual law. And there's a good chance that it's going to change. So don't get all wigged out if you hear something that's going to negatively impact you. Just know that you need to pay attention to it, especially around that October 31st date. And you know, if you're a client of ours or if you're a TaxSmartInvestors.com subscriber, we're going to run a Biden tax plan webinar for you before we do any sort of like any sort of big webinar for the masses. And we're gonna, it's gonna be like kind of a VIP webinar where you'll get an invite to it. But we want to get closer to the bill actually passing before we run that webinar. So we were actually originally trying to get that done October sixth, but uh, but the bill, you know, it stalled out, and now the the House is off. I think um, last week, and the Senate's off next week. So it's going to be a, a race to the finish line here in the next couple of weeks to get all that done by October 31st. But if you're 
a client at the Real Estate CPA, or if you are a subscriber to taxmartinvestors.com, you'll be getting a special invitation. So just be on the lookout for that. It'll come through your email. And if you want to get that special invitation, it's not hard. Just go to taxmartinvestors.com, sign up for the plus or the pro plan. Uh, not the basic plan, the plus or the pro plan. Got to get in that insiders group and you'll get an invitation as well. All right. So let's start off by talking about what is not in this proposal, in this budget reconciliation bill. Um, so why, why don't we start there? Absolutely. Absolutely. So prior proposals of these tax changes included a provision that would limit the ability to use a 1031 exchange. Basically, what the proposal said is that you would be limited to $500,000 of gain that could be deferred in any given year or a million dollars if you are married. And as you know, there's when 1031 exchange transactions, in many cases, there can be substantial gains that could be higher than those thresholds. And that was a major concern for real estate investors. And the good news is that that is nowhere to be found in the latest version of these proposals. So real estate investors out there with highly appreciated assets or plan to acquire real estate and have them appreciate over time, which is one of the goals of investing in real estate, can breathe a sigh of relief that the 1031 exchange is not going anywhere, at least for now. Something else that is not in the budget reconciliation bill, as at least as of today, is the stepped up basis rules being pared back. So Biden, President Biden, wanted the stepped up basis rules to be pared back. Right, right now, if you were to die and you own real estate or really any asset, you get to pass that asset onto your heirs and they get a stepped up basis in the asset. And what that means is if you bought the asset for $100,000, your basis is $100,000. And then if you depreciate that asset $30,000, now your basis, your adjusted basis is $70,000. And let, let's say when you die, your the value of that property is now worth $200,000. Well, if you had sold the property right before you died, you would have $200,000 of sale, sales price, current valuation, minus the adjusted basis of $70,000 because you take your original cost basis minus any depreciation that you've claimed to get your adjusted basis. So $200,000 minus $70,000, that's $130,000 gain. Some of that gain is long-term capital gains, gain from appreciation. And some of that gain is depreciation recapture, gain from depreciation that you've previously claimed, right? So I've got $30,000 of depreciation recapture and $100,000 of long-term capital gain. That's if I sell the asset right before I die. That's, or if I just gift, a lot of people make the mistake of gifting real estate to their heirs. I know that it makes, like, it makes probate easier and everything, which is great. But from a tax perspective, if I were to gift this property to my son before I die, then he, he steps into my shoes he inherits my basis. So he gets a $70,000 basis. If he turns around and sells it when I die, he's got $130,000 gain. So I can sell it before I die, or he can sell it before or after I die. And we all have to pay $130,000 gain. But if I hold on to the asset until I die, and then I pass the asset through death to my heir, then he gets a stepped up basis in the asset he gets the value stepped up to the current market value. So we'll run an appraisal. We'll figure out that, hey, the property is worth $200,000. And now James, my son, owns this property for $200,000. That's his basis. So the $70,000 basis gets stepped up to $200,000. Now, what does that mean? Well, he can turn around and sell it immediately. 
right? Right after he, he gets title, he can turn around and sell it for $200,000. He's going to sell it for $200,000, but his basis is also $200,000. So his gain is $0. Which makes this entire strategy of 1031 exchange until you die um, still very viable for people out there because you could 1031 exchange throughout your entire life and just keep racking up, you know, your basis is going to be low by the time you get to the end. Um, but guess what? You get to pass it on to your heirs. They receive it at the fair market value of racing all of the depreciation recapture. And basically the, the taxable appreciation you would have recognized that you sold the property is eliminated yeah. through this process. Swap until you drop, baby. That's what we're talking yeah. about. So that, that stepped up basis rule, everybody's freaking out because President Biden's, his original proposals, tax proposals was to eliminate that. So, so I die, I pass the real estate on to my heir, James, and he has to pay tax on that $130,000 gain. I, I think, and I think that the idea was that it was taxable upon transfer or something like that. Like he, yeah. he would actually have to sell the asset or he'd have to come out yeah. of pocket to pay the tax on $130,000 gain. And that's yeah. not in the proposal. Yeah, they wanted to make it. Uh, they wanted to make death a realization event. So basically, you would pay tax on the difference between the adjusted basis and the fair market value at the date of your death. Um, and they were going to have some kind of special workarounds to allow people to to pay it over a pe- that tax over a period of time, so they didn't necessarily have to sell that asset. But like Brandon said, that's nowhere to be found here, which is good news for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And the reason that they had that stepped up basis going away is because they wanted to tax long-term capital gains at the top tax rate. So they wanted to move the long-term capital gain tax rate from 20% to 39.6%. And I believe that was on anybody earning over a million dollars or gains over a million dollars. The problem is, is that when you do that, when you drastically increase the long-term capital gain rate, what are investors going to do? Well, they're not going to sell their property, right? So what happened was they, they did some studies and they realized that if all you do is increase the long-term capital gain rate, tax revenue will actually decrease because people just won't sell their property. They'll just hold on to it. And so then there's no revenue to tax, right? There's no gain to tax. So the tax revenue would actually decrease for the IRS. So what they came up with was, well, if people are just going to hold on to their assets until they die, then we're going to get rid of the 1031 exchange and we're going to get rid of the stepped up basis because that will encourage people to just make selling decisions just you know today, not in 30 years from now when they die. And so that was the idea. So you basically lock in that 39.6% long-term capital gain rate. You remove the ability to defer or eliminate via removing the 1031. That's the deferral. And removing the stepped-up basis, that's the eliminate uh, gains. And uh, and none of that's in the proposal. I mean, the long-term capital gain increases in the proposal, but it's not to 39.6%, which we'll talk about here in a second. Is there anything else that's uh, not in the proposal that was that was previously talked about big ones i'm pretty sure that those are the two major ones for real estate investors were the 1031 exchange and the step up in basis which was one of the major factors people were concerned about um that's not still in this bill right now cool all right well let's talk about what is in the bill yep so i think uh, we could first start with long-term capital gains rate right just picking up where we left off there so like Brandon said, originally it was going to go to 39.5% if you're making over a million dollars. Instead, what they're going to do is they're just going to increase it from 20%, that top rate uh, from 20% to 25%. And that would be effective after September 13th, 2021, which makes it a little retroactive, assuming this gets passed. 
And that's presumably to prevent people from rushing to sell all their assets right now before that comes out. Yeah. But uh, that was, they're simply just increasing it from 20 to 25% rather than the 39.5%. So that is a win for a lot of people. Although I will say this, that on the 39% and a half rate, had they kept that, that was on for people earning an income over a million dollars. This is just moving up the current rate from 20 to 25%. So that's going to impact people um, with incomes below a million dollars too, um, which is interesting, but uh, the good news overall, it's not going up that high. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, retroactive though to September 13th, man, I hate that. I hate retroactive taxes, man. I mean, I guess, I guess in theory, it makes sense. You know, you don't want people rushing to the door to liquidate, which I don't think that they would do over a 5% hike. I wouldn't personally, I would just keep holding. Maybe buying cash flow and assets, right? <laughs> you yeah. don't have to sell, <laughs> but man, retroactive. That's just, yeah, that, that, that's where you kind of get into that fairness conversation. Yeah. Is that really fair? Yeah. I mean, they also got to worry about the publicly traded markets too. Unfortunately, everybody That's can true. just sell their assets uh, at a click of a button and send it, you know, the stock market plummeting. And I'm sure that uh, some people in Congress uh, who are near retirement age may not have wanted to see that occur. But yeah, uh, yeah so yeah. that's just another fact to consider. Funny how all that works. Uh, so some other things that are in the bill, they're moving the top tax rate back to 39.6%. So the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act moved the top tax rate down from 39.6% to 37%. So gave uh, gave top high-income earners a 2.6% uh, break. And now they are moving it the proposal is to move it back to 39.6%. Uh, there's also a 3% surcharge tax, a new tax that's going to be assessed on taxpayers with modified AGIs in excess of $5 million or $2.5 million if you're married filing separately. So it's an additional 3% tax on your income. I believe that's all income. In, is that in excess of $5 million or is that on the entire $5 million? Like if my income is five million one dollar, do you know if that's is that on on the entire five million and one dollars or just on the dollar? I believe it's saying that there's the the tax would be in excess of five million. So I think it's if you're making over five million dollars, that would be imposed there. Well, it's actually got not. It, it's it. not. It's not clear. It's not a hundred percent clear, but the way it's reading, that's what it sounds like. Okay. Um, there's also a this is a this is a bad one for like literally everybody. Uh, a 3.8% net investment income tax. That's been around for a while, but they're expanding the definition of it to include all business income. So even though it says net investment income tax, now that 3.8% tax is going to also apply to your business income. Any sort of pass-through income from partnerships, S corporations, anything like that, you're now going to have to pay a 3.8% net investment income tax on. Now, previously, you just paid this 3.8% net investment income tax. Um, I believe if you were earning over, was it $250,000? The net investment income tax was if you're earning over 200, uh, if you're single and 250, if you're married. Now it looks like they want to make it on all all business income if you're earning over $400,000 if you're single and 500 if you're if you're married, file and joint. Got it. So that net investment income tax, that was for like, if you're, if you're modified adjusted gross income, I think it was modified. If your modified yep. adjusted gross income was more than 250K, this 3.8% surtax would come into play on your interest, dividends, capital gain, rental income, rental net income. Um, so investment income. But now they're saying we're also going to include business income from pass-through entities uh, when your taxable income, ta it's taxable income is greater than 400000 or $500,000. Uh, 
maybe that 250 on the current NIIT was taxable. Like I'm not Magi. I, I, I'm actually pretty sure it was Magi, but you know what they're what they're trying to do here. You know what what Biden's uh, promise was to America was that taxes would not be increased on people making $400,000 or less. So I think that's what, why this is all based on this $400,000 number is uh, is that they're trying to retain that promise, which is kind of shifting around the way things are, are done currently. True, true, true. So the bill also includes disallowing excess business losses. Uh, an excess business loss is a loss. Uh, a simple way to think about this is that if you have losses in excess of business income, net business income, then you have an excess loss. But that's really not the definition because you you get a $500,000 allowance and then over $500,000, that's the excess business loss. So so if if at the CPA firm, for example, if if I net $300,000 and my rental losses are $350,000 and I materially participate in my rentals, then I've got a $50,000 loss, right? A loss that exceeds my business income. 350 loss, 300K net income. If I have $300,000 from my CPA firm income, uh, net income, and I have a $900,000 loss from my rental real estate, maybe I bought uh, some large properties and I did a cost seg and I materially participate. So I create a $900,000 tax loss. Well, $900,000 of loss minus my $300,000 of CPA firm business income is $600,000. In this case, because I'm married, I get a $500,000 allowance. Okay. So I get to claim the first 300K because that's a dollar for dollar that matches up with my business income. Right. So I get to offset my business income. Then I get to claim an additional $500,000 because that's the allowance that married filing joint folks get. So I get to claim an additional $500,000 loss and that offsets all my other income that's out there. W-2 income, interest income, dividend income, IRA liquidation income, 401k liquidation income, all that type of stuff. So I get an additional $500,000 allowance. But when you look at the $300,000 of loss that offsets my business income, plus the $500,000 of allowance, uh, I'm only at $800,000 of loss, but I had a $900,000 loss. So the remaining 100K of losses, that's an excess business loss. And all they're doing is they're making it permanent in this bill. So a lot of people kind of wigged out. They thought, oh, that's going away. I can't even claim the additional 500. That's not true. You'll be able to claim the additional 500K. That allowance is going to be there. They're just making the this provision, they're making it permanent. Uh, so you're not going to be able to generate a 900K loss on 300K business income and claim the, the entire $900,000. You're only going to be able to claim whatever your business income is plus 500K if you're married filing joint any additional loss is an excess business loss and will be suspended. Yeah, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. But if, if you've been around for the last few years, you know that that's already kind of been in place. So there's there's making it permanent. There's nothing to be too concerned about. Um, when we kind of move down, when we move down a little bit, we get back into estate planning. While they did not uh, remove the step-up basis like we discussed, they are, removed, they are reducing the estate and gift tax exclusion back down to the $5 million mark per individual which is substantial, a substantial decrease from, I think it's uh, it's over $11 million per individual today. Uh, so now estate planning for a lot of people is going to become a lot more prevalent over the last few years. It hasn't been that major of an issue for a lot of taxpayers because a lot of taxpayers simply don't have, you know, estates that are worth 
uh, or net worth that are that are in excess of 11 point I forgot what it is today it's like 11.26 million I believe and it's double that if you're married so and, and that just means that you can pass that much value to your heirs without having to face a tax in the state exactly tax. exactly exactly so yeah now now it's coming to back down a little bit lower um, people are gonna have to to look at their state plans a little bit more closely to see how they could uh, mitigate their exposure to estate taxes which which can be quite hefty so that's a little bit more interesting. So in switching over to kind of like the corporate or, or business provisions, the corporate tax rate is going to decrease to 18% on the first $400,000 of income. So again, kind of what Tom mentioned, President Biden's promise to the American people was, I'm not going to increase your taxes if you're making less than $400,000. Well, they actually threw the corporate world a bone and said, hey, if you're on the first 400K of income, you actually have to pay 18%. Um, it's going to be a 21% tax up to 5 million in income, and then it's going to increase to 26.5% on net income in excess of $5 million. So uh, so the corporate tax rate is going up for corporations earning in excess of $5 million. Yeah. Sticking on the corporate side of things, you know, uh, this rule, this rule actually might help some taxpayers who have S corporations or who have had S corporations for quite a while. Um, so basically, whenever you want to, and we, we talk about this all the time, that you don't want to put rental property into an S corporation because in order to remove it from the S corporation for any number of reasons that you may want to remove it, you have to basically recognize a gain because you have to sell it. So if you have an appreciated piece of real estate in the S corporation, you want to remove it, it's sold at the fair market value. And now just for simply removing the asset from the S corporation, you have a capital gain. So what they're doing is, if you had an S corporation that was an S corporation on May 13th, 1996, I don't know why they choose these dates. Sometimes I'm sure there's some rhyme or reason for it, but it seems relatively arbitrary. Um, you can convert or reorganize as a partnership on a tax-free basis, which is, I know, something that a lot of people would love to do uh, to be able to get their real estate out of the S corporation into a partnership. And the partnership has a lot more flexibility in terms of being able to remove that asset from the partnership tax and penalty, excuse me, penalty free, like as an IRA, tax free. Um, and that's uh, and that's something that's uh, going to be helpful for a lot of people out there who've had these S corporations for a long time. All right, moving into retirement accounts, some some interesting things with retirement accounts. So the first one that I want to talk about is the backdoor Roth IRA strategy that is going to be eliminated. So they're they're basically going to enact the provision that says you cannot roll over any after-tax contributions into a Roth IRA. So the backdoor Roth IRA contribution strategy, the way that it works is you make an after-tax contribution to a traditional IRA, and then you roll that traditional IRA and, and you make an after-tax, right? Not before tax, so a lot of people make before-tax contributions to traditional IRAs, meaning that they get a tax break for making the contribution to the IRA, right? They get tax savings, but uh, but but they don't pay tax on the you know six thousand dollars that they put into the traditional IRA. But other people who earn too much money to make that traditional IRA contribution, they like to stuff Roth IRAs because. Roth money is good over a long period of time. So they'll make an after-tax contribution to an IRA, meaning that they pay tax on the contributions. They, they pay tax on the 6,000 bucks. Then they contribute the 6,000 bucks to a traditional IRA. And then they roll the traditional IRA over into a Roth IRA. That is called a backdoor Roth IRA contribution because you can't, if you earn too much money, you can't directly contribute to a Roth IRA, but you can always roll 
money over into a Roth IRA. So that's the way that it works. Uh, this proposal is going to eliminate that by basically saying you're not allowed to roll after-tax money over into a Roth IRA. So pretty much wipes that that strategy out. Also, uh, I believe pretty much wipes out the mega backdoor Roth IRA strategy, which you know I, I don't know much about, but I know that there's a lot of people pushing it online. So just be careful there. And these are for contributions made after December 31st, 2021, regardless of your income level. So, uh, so you still have some time based on this proposal, but be careful. Don't go and make something here before this bill passes. Don't go do this before the bill passes because you know, they could always make it retroactive. So just, just be careful. Right now, it's December 31st, 2021, regardless of uh, your income levels. You cannot do a backdoor Roth IRA anymore. So another thing they changed for the IRAs or they want to change for the IRAs is uh, they want to prohibit uh, basically an IRA from holding a security when the IRA owner has has to have a certain amount of minimal assets or income or they have to complete a certain amount of education or have a specific license. So in other words, what they're trying to do is prohibit investments in an IRA when you have to be an accredited investor. And I know it's going to impact a lot of people out there who invest in real estate syndicates and funds. That's something you're gonna have to keep keep in mind that these are going to be prohibited going forward, and that's going to start on December 31st, 2021. Now it gets a little bit worse if you already have these types of assets within your IRA because they're going to give you a two year window to remove these assets from your IRA. Otherwise, uh, your IRA is going to lose its status, and presumably everything that you have in your IRA will be distributed, and you're going to be subject to income tax and penalties. Uh, if you're under the age of 59 and a half, you'll be subject to a 10% penalty if your IRA is distributed. Uh, so that's something you're going to want to keep in mind. There are ways to get around that, and we did discuss that on the Facebook Live if you want to go and check that out. And go to the Tax Smart Investors on Facebook and find that Facebook Live, and we give you a handful of strategies to get around that. Uh, but something that you're going to want to be aware of uh, if you do invest in uh, basically private investments through your IRA. Yeah, that that'll be a big one, and and you should for sure be uh, be tracking that. I mean, if that goes into into effect on October 31st, assuming that they pass the budget reconciliation bill, I mean, you need to be having conversations with your CPA in November and December on how you get out of these uh, syndication investments that you're investing in. Now, it's not going to impact like private partnerships, right? It's just securitized partnerships, those that require you to be an accredited investor. So Tom could still go and set up a, you know, a, uh, a, a, a small rental partnership and he could have IRA investors invest in that small rental partnership as long as they're like friends and family or people that he knows well. He doesn't, he just needs them to be sophisticated. He doesn't need them to be accredited. You can still do that type of thing with your IRA, but now you can't have a more than 10% ownership in the entity. That's another proposed change in this reconciliation bill. So the IRA is capped at 10%. Otherwise, it's self-dealing and the entire transaction is prohibited and blows up in your face. But what you can't do is you can't go and invest in syndications or real estate funds with your IRAs. Nothing about 401ks. So if you have a solo 401k, at least in the current proposal, you're still good. But even people with 401ks, you should be following this very closely because what's stopping them from throwing the 401k piece in there as well? Yeah, for sure. This is certainly a blow to investors who use their retirement accounts to, to access private real estate offerings um, that require you to be accredited. But uh, we'll, we'll see if it makes the final bill. 
Another thing in here, uh, kind of wanted to throw in, uh, just not, not related to retirement accounts, but uh, I know a lot of our clients have been investing in, in cryptocurrencies recently over the last few years has been very popular. Actually wrote an article for tax smart investors on this not too long ago, where in the article it stated there's a loophole that you could basically get around the wash sale rules with cryptocurrency. For anybody, just a quick refresher, a wash sale rule basically says that if you sell a security and recognize a capital loss and then buy back uh, that same security or an identical security or substantially identical security that you can't take within 30 days that you can't take that capital loss anymore. And that was not defined. I mean, that rule is not in place for cryptocurrency. So it was a loophole and it looks like they want to close that loophole and include cryptocurrencies in there. Now it's not saying whether or not that would be retroactive, but it's something you want to keep in mind if you are investing in cryptocurrencies. Yeah, absolutely. So that's pretty much the main crux of it. There, there's a little bit more that I want to talk about, but that, that's the main crux of the tax changes that are going to impact real estate investors. So another big part of this bill is increasing revenue or funding, I guess is a better word. Another part of this bill is how do you fund the internal revenue service? And you do it in two ways. One, you give them more money. So you appropriate more money via budget or, and in this case, and you improve taxpayer compliance, right? So you, and what does that mean? You get more people paying what they should be paying in tax. So they're going to do a couple things here. Uh, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to fund the IRS with an additional $80 billion. Uh, now, I don't know what that actually means in terms of the staff that they can hire and things like that. But I do know that if the Internal Revenue Service gets more money, what are they going to do? They're going to increase audits because they're trying to make sure that everybody is compliant. So just be aware of that. Audit rates might go up. Now we've been in a in a probably a decade, maybe a decade and a half, um, just kind of living in this world where taxpayers do not fear the IRS, and that has not always been the case. If you look back through history, uh, there were many times where. There are many, many, many years where taxpayers feared the IRS and the IRS was the big watchdog that would, or the big bulldog that would come in and make you, make you do it right. But because of all the budget cuts they face, they've, they've gone bare bones with their staff. They're answering like, what, what is it? Some crazy statistic, like 1% or something of all the phone calls that they get, which is insane, right? So they're bare bones. It's yeah, I mean, hard to fear somebody that like that, right? <laughs> so that that's the world we've been living in. Yeah, I mean, trying to get on the phone with the IRS over the last few months has been <laughs> has has been very difficult. I mean, it's it's almost yeah. impossible to get them on the phone. And uh, from what I've heard recently through some continuing professional education courses I've been on, that a lot of the IRS staff are still working from home. So really, at this point, uh, the IRS is all bark and no bite, and it looks like they're trying to turn that around. Yeah. And, and if they get the additional funding, you just, just be prepared. So get your documents in order, get ready for audits, because uh, if they get the additional funding, they're coming. Uh, the, the additional big one that I want to talk about, because we've seen this in the real estate space, uh, people investing in land conservation easements, syndicated land conservation easements. Back in 2016, I think it was 2016, were considered a listed transaction. And then and then they landed on like the, the IRS's dirty dozen tax scam lists, uh, maybe in 2018 or 2019. And they've been there ever since, along with like micro captive insurance companies and, and stuff like that. 
so the way that a syndicated land conservation easement works is you put $100,000 into this partnership. Uh, they go and buy with, with everybody's money. They go and buy a piece of land and then they put an easement on it. And the easement says you're never allowed to develop the land. So they're preserving the land forever. And you get a charitable deduction. The partnership gets a charitable deduction for the value of the easement. So they have to have an appraiser come in and value the easement, which is relatively hard to do. These things end up in tax court a lot because the valuation is, again, relative. There's not a free market for these big easements. So the valuations can be inflated. So you put $100,000 in and you might get passed back like a $300,000 charitable contribution, which you can then claim on Schedule A. And that $300,000 charitable contribution might save you $110,000, $120,000 in taxes. So people would put $100,000 into land conservation easement and they get $110,000, $120,000 in taxes back. Now, the way that the law is written, at least today, is that's fine, right? Like technically, it's okay to do. Now, the IRS doesn't like the appraisals naturally, right? I mean, the IRS is not going to like an appraisal if you can put $100,000 in and then immediately get 120 k in tax back, right? Ta- tax refunds back. IRS is not going to like that. So they've been auditing these and they've stepped up a lot of pressure. And they started that process back in 2016, 2017. I can't remember when, when it became a listed transaction, but somewhere around there. Started that process. Then you started seeing a lot more audits of these syndicated land conservation easements. You started seeing a lot more of them go to tax court. And now almost every single one is being audited and going to tax court. But the IRS is challenging the technical provisions within the deeds. They're not challenging the appraisals, even though the appraisals are the main issue. They're challenging the technical provisions in the deeds because they know that they can win on the technical issues. And they know that it's going to be a hard fought battle on the valuation issues. So they're going to hit the technical piece first, and then they're going to sort out the appraisal piece, the valuation stuff, once they once the technical piece runs its course. Now, the syndicated conservation easement industry works together on this stuff. So they all have similar deeds. So they're all losing right now. They're all losing because all the deeds have technical flaws. And the IRS is winning on all of those. But my understanding is that those technical flaws were changed in like 2015 or 2016. So now all the deeds don't have those technical flaws. So the IRS is going to have to start presenting novel arguments, new arguments in tax court on the technical side to win, right? Or they're going to have to start challenging valuations for all of these syndicated conservation easements that were like 2016 and beyond, which means that it's going to be costly, which means they're not going to have as great of a win rate. Uh, They're probably still going to win a lot but they might not be you know, total disallowances of these uh, investments. The problem now is that Congress decided to solve this for the IRS and the tax court. So the current proposal says, if you invest in a syndicated conservation easement and, and the charitable contribution exceeds two and a half times of your basis in the partnership, the entire deduction is disallowed and you owe a 40% penalty for a material misstatement or a gross valuation misstatement. So if I... If I put $100,000 into a syndicated conservation easement and I get a $300,000 charitable contribution, the 300K is axed, so I don't get the contribution, and I owe 40% of the total tax plus the tax. So my 120K of tax, I owe that plus another like $45,000 or so in, in, uh, in penalties. And uh, the, the interesting thing about this is they are making this retroactive to December 31st, 2016. 
So if you invested in a land conservation easement, syndicated land conservation easement in 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, you need to be watching this provision very closely. My guess is that there would be some compliance period where you could come back into compliance and avoid that 40% penalty, maybe even write off your $100,000 investment. So you get a load of a break, but you need to be watching this provision very closely. It is a big retroactive multiple years. Uh, because it's so retroactive, I don't know that it's going to pass. There are Democratic senators that disagree with retroactive law changes. Uh, but the reality is, is right now it's in the proposal. So watch out. Yeah. And just to confirm it. Yeah. It was, uh, became a listed transaction in 2017, but they, they're taking it all back to, to the end of 16. So we'll see what happens. All right. So the last thing, the last big one is that there's a proposal in the bill. And this one's getting a lot of attention online. There was a proposal in the bill that expands the definition of a reportable payment for banks and, uh, and payment institutions. And these payments are subject to withholding. And uh, what, 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 the, what the rule says is that if you have any transaction in excess of $600, you have to report it to the IRS and potentially have to have taxes withheld from that payment or, or there's withholding requirements. And, and I'm sure that you'll be able to get around withholding requirements by filling out a W-9 and doing all that stuff. But the whole point is to increase compliance. So the IRS wants to know basically about any transaction that is in excess of $600 on any payment platform. Now, here's where it gets weird. If you go on Facebook and you sell your iPhone, your old iPhone for 650 bucks, that becomes a reportable payment to the IRS. And you will potentially owe taxes on that payment, depending on the circumstances of you selling your phone. That's where it gets a little weird. So I don't know if that one's going to make it all the way through. There's been a lot of pushback on that online. But just be aware, any payment, any payment in excess of $600, yeah. that's the proposal. It's going to be a reportable transaction to the IRS. Yeah, I mean, that would be rough for people just trying to do normal everyday business through platforms like a Venmo or like the Facebook marketplace or really yep. PayPal. And it, it that just become, that seems very prohibitive. Like, you now you have to track the basis of your iPhone. Now you better save the receipts of your iPhone, right? So make sure yeah. you're not reporting a gain on those. But yeah, wow. Yeah, wild, wild. And it says it says third-party network transactions where the aggregate payment during the calendar year is more than $600. So actually, I actually don't know if it's every payment is, is looked at and asked. And the question is, is it more than $600? Or if it's just like, once you do $600 of payments through Venmo, now literally every other payment, even if regardless of how small is reportable, I, I actually, I don't know specifically how that works. Um, and I think that we'll get more information on it. But regardless, it's like, I mean, look, th there are certainly tax cheats out there. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I think that the vast majority of people are not tax cheats. At least the clients that we work with are not tax cheats. They want to do things by the book. Uh, I mean, they want to reduce taxes, but they want to do it legally. They want to do it by the book. So it kind of just feels like an invasion of privacy. But I guess that's not a tax talk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can see them putting it maybe a little higher than 600. Okay. Just the, the way people use these types of platforms today. I mean, that's, that's shocking that they would, that they would try to do something like that, but we'll see. All right. So that's not an exhaustive list of all the proposed changes that, that came out through the Ways and Means Committee, but uh, it is pretty much the major ones that real estate investors will want to keep an eye out on. Uh, like Brandon said, we're going to go ahead and do a webinar for our tax smart investors as well as our clients um, as soon as the new bill is finalized and actually comes out. 
So if you want to stay on top of that, want to know when that's coming out, go ahead and join the Tax Smart Investor community, facebook.com slash groups slash Tax Smart Investors, and uh, you can join there, or you can go check out taxsmartinvestors.com to become a subscriber today. And to, to clarify, if you are a subscriber of the Plus or the Pro plan on taxsmartinvestors.com, you'll basically get premium VIP early access to the Biden webinar tax or the Biden tax plan webinar that we run. Uh, you'll be there with our clients at the firm. Uh, if you join the free Facebook group at TaxSmart, I think it's like facebook.com slash group slash TaxSmart investors, or you just look up TaxSmart real estate investors on Facebook, you'll find our free group. There's about 3,600 or so real estate investors in there as of today. Um, we'll, we'll do something for those guys too. It's just going to be a little bit later. We want to we want to cater to our subscribers and our clients first. So if you want to be part of that early group, go go subscribe at taxsmartinvestors.com. So we'll, we'll catch everybody over there. And until next episode, have uh, happy investing. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.